It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 208 for September 5, 2010. Recorded September 3rd. Ah, Adobe InDesign. Every time I open InDesign to play, um, I'm sorry, uh, work, work, uh, to work to understand the new features, not play, work, work, definitely to work and understand the new features. Every time I do that, I find myself wishing that I had some real print projects to work on. Oh, wow, is probably the term I've used most frequently as I've tried to wrap my mind around what the developers at Adobe have done with InDesign. Among the most exciting features are the ones that allow a print designer to repurpose an ink-on-paper document to one that includes animation and even video, and it could live on the web. About seven years ago, I chided Adobe for creating a product that, while advanced in many ways, was incapable of performing tasks that my favorite antique, even at the time, Ventura Publisher, had been able to do since the late 1980s. No more. Adobe InDesign is now the clear leader. Ventura is gone. PageMaker is gone. Frame or FrameMaker is gone. Quark Express is on the ropes. The king is InDesign. One of the things I complained about in 2004 was InDesign's inability to create a paragraph that spans multiple columns in a layout. One of the most common newsletter designs is a three-column layout. Previously, if you needed a headline to span the columns, you had to create a separate frame. Now, finally, you can just define a paragraph that spans columns. But... The designers went beyond that and created an inverse function. If you have a series of short bullet points, something that could fit easily two or three up in a standard column, you can define a style that turns that one column into many. Seeing that was definitely an oh-wow moment. I really wanted to get an expert's view on the latest iteration of InDesign, so I sent a note to her geekiness, Anne-Marie Concepcion, also known as the Design Geek, and requested an audience. Fortunately, the audience was granted, and we spent part of an afternoon talking about InDesign. Her geekiness is a print professional who has created several educational videos for lynda.com. With David Blattner, she shares InDesign secrets. In other words, this is somebody who knows a lot about print a lot about design, and a lot about InDesign. Let me set the stage this way and, and just say that print has changed a lot since, uh, pick a year, 1984. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's about the time that I was able to stop sending typewritten pages to a typesetter. Uh, one of the things I was working on back in those days was a, uh, I think it was a two-page, well, single-page, actually, front and back newsletter. And it typically took about a week to put that together by the time we got it to the typesetter, and they took out my mistakes and put in their mistakes and <laughs> sent it back, and it didn't fit, and we went back and forth several times. And suddenly this thing called desktop publishing came to be, and instead of taking a week to do that kind of stuff, I could do it in a day. Mm-hmm. People who have purchased and installed InDesign CS5, I have to think, might be wondering if they just stepped through the looking glass. Because CS5 is, of course, about print, but it's also about Flash, it's about the web, it's about interactive, it's about video. 
uh, as you made very clear in your lynda.com video on the CS5 new features, mm-hmm. I think one of the things you said there was uh, it's the layout program for any kind of project, not just print. Right. So some print professionals must be wondering what's going on here, and mm. that's the very long introduction to the question of what the heck is going on here. <laughs> Well, um, I think that print is not going away. You know, we still uh, listen to radio when television is on. And, you know, you look around your office, you'll see 10,000 things printed or, you know, in your kitchen cabinets uh, or at the library. So, and, and InDesign is, is basically the de facto program for creating those kind of layouts. It's kind of funny when I talk to people who aren't involved in this field, in our field, and they'll say, what do you do? And I said, well, I kind of specialize in teaching and consulting on Adobe InDesign. And they're like, Adobe? You mean like Photoshop? And I'm like, no, InDesign. It's the program that's basically used to create everything you ever read, you know, this newspaper, this magazine, this box of cereal, whatever. So people don't realize that there's a software program that does that. And it still does. But, you know, just like, I mean, I also remember that desktop publishing revolution. That's why I got involved in this whole thing. It's just that I was just taken by by the whole thing of being able to, you know, have my own printing press, you know, in my own office. Um, but we're going through another evolution right now, and that is that it's not print. It's stuff that you can read on – I hate this term. It's an Adobe term, mobile devices, you know, but um, things that aren't ink on paper. So it's not just – and it's beyond websites, you know that I read today, you know, they have this, um, it's Beloit College that publishes every year uh, the list of, you know, people entering freshman year in college have ah, never, yes. you know, you, you know that list I'm talking about? Yes, the things that they are not familiar with because it right, preceded right. Like, them, yes. They all think Fergie is from the Black Eyed Peas. They didn't know that, you know, this other, there's this other woman from the royalty, you know, that's named Fergie, that kind of thing, that they are, they think email is old hat. <laughs> you know, email is too slow. Uh, they're I, not emailing. I have heard. That <laughs> so we've email- gone beyond email. <laughs> yes. And I think it's true. I think it's true. I have a daughter, you know, who's in her 20s. And if I want to reach her, I have to text her. If I send her an email now, and this just changed in the past like three years. If I send her an email, there's a good chance she'll never open it. Email is text messaging for old people. That's, I guess so. I, I've heard that. I guess so. I guess so. You know, my mom drives her, drives her crazy that I never listen to voicemail. Voicemail is also like email. Nobody listens to voicemail anymore. And she'll say, like, I called, I left a message. I'm like, oh, yeah, I saw the message, like, blinking. Well, didn't you pick it up? I'm like, no. (laughs) I just checked my caller ID and I called you back. So um, I think what's happening is that Adobe has got to keep their software, they have to keep at least in step, if not, you know, in front of the curve of where their audience needs to be. All my clients are publishing clients because they kind of specialize in not just InDesign, but also the InDesign in-copy workflow. I know that I think you've talked about it before, but that's what a lot of publishers use instead of the editors or the writers marking up paper proofs from the InDesign layout. They actually edit the InDesign layout in this program called InCopy. So I'd say 90% of my clients are editors and designers. And they publish magazines and books and other periodicals or some Marcom doing internal internal kind of stuff, but all of them are basically freaking out, you know, about where is our business going to be in five years? Who's going to subscribe to a paper magazine anymore when you have the iPad and Wired? Oh, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) and and book publishers, you know, I mean, my God, that whole field is just exploding, and that is basically what I've been involved in so heavily, and David, my partner in InDesignSecrets.com, 
as well. We put on our first annual conference in May. We're like, you know, throwing a big party and hoping people would come. And we were overrun because we kind of hit a sweet spot. It was right after the iPad came out, right after iBookstore came out. And the name of the conference, we, we called it the Print and E-Publishing Conference. And it was at the Adobe headquarters, you know, and it was all about InDesign, of course, because we run this blog called InDesignSecrets.com. And we got a ton of people, and they all want to know, like, you know, how do we get our publications onto the iPad, onto Kindle, onto the Sony Reader, onto Nook? Because that's where everything's going. It's not that there's, they're not going to, they're still going to be selling books. But, you know, I mean, I don't know about what, what your lifestyle is like, but I have a Kindle and I have an iPad, and I used to buy, um, and, or go borrow from the library at least five to ten books a month. And now I can't remember the last time I bought a book. I will immediately check to see if it's available in the Kindle store or on the iBook store first. Yeah, I almost bought a Kindle, decided to hold off for a little bit simply because so many library books are not available. Absolutely. Yeah, I was just difficult. learning about that this weekend. Yeah, that yeah. apparently you need a nook yeah. to uh, be able to put the library book on there, which is right. kind of So Adobe is trying to help all their clients who are using InDesign to create printed magazines and books and brochures and travelogues or whatever to be able to get that content out onto other devices that people are reading. Now, I kind of, you know, they don't, though there is an export to HTML for creating websites, and they did used to have like an export for go live kind of thing. That really never worked. It, it just was wrongheaded, it, and he just, right, you couldn't really do anything with it, and we still get people who request like, how can I design an HTML email in InDesign? <laughs> Which is, I think, is a legitimate question. The designers <laughs> are charged with creating the HTML email blast that we all love, mm -hmm. and they use InDesign. How wrong can they tool. do it? And the answer is, there's no way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just wrong. It's the wrong tool. Unfortunately, I don't know why, uh, but who knows? It's, no, I don't work there. But at least they have export to EPUB which uh, they call Digital Editions, uh, I think in earlier versions. Uh, Adobe Digital Edition is the free EPUB reader that they offer to utility that runs on Macs and PCs. And it's all right, you know, it's, it's usable. But at least it's a way to read EPUBs on your laptop or on your computer. Most people are transferring them to something else. And um, they improved uh, the export to EPUB quite a bit in CS5 from older versions, and I'm sure that's going to be more improvements coming down the pike. Now, this whole thing with um, interactivity uh, in CS5, of being able to create Swift, like online portfolios, too, that's kind of cool. I personally am not that involved with that kind of stuff. I don't do a lot. I don't get a lot of those kind of projects. But I, I guess they'd be more for, like, marketing or – I remember seeing a demo of somebody's annual report that was done that way, that, you know, you could create one document in InDesign that will be an annual report for print – and then as well as exporting it to an interactive Swift that people could look up, you know, you link to it from your website. And uh, the thing is that designers are not familiar with creating flashy things. Have you ever looked at Flash? Have you ever opened up their program? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Maron, you know. Yes. I hired uh, my I, – I, we hire – in my other business where I do training, we offer Flash training. But I don't do the Flash training. And there's a Flash developer, a couple of Flash developers who are really good teachers. And I had one guy in just to show me how to do an animated banner, you know, in Flash for a project. Two hours, and I still didn't quite get it. The uh, process is a little opaque, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, it takes a special kind of mind. And But, you know, apparently it is the bee's knees 
compared to whatever people used to do before. But a good friend of mine who's a fantastic graphic designer, runs a very busy graphic design shop here in Chicago. His name is Joe Grossman. He um, does beautiful print stuff, got a lot of great clients, and he knows Flash. And he was telling me the other day at dinner that what he was found out was that after he had done a whole bunch of Flash stuff for a year, he found out he was doing it all wrong. And apparently that, that is a common feeling among Flash developers is that you learn, you, you start doing stuff on the timeline, and then uh, you realize you're not, that's the wrong way to do it. You should be doing everything with action script. Yes. So then he sort of had to relearn Flash in order to do it the best way. So what's great about InDesign is that you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. It's, you know, if you're familiar with like the layers panel, then you've got to down cold. Because there's nothing more complicated than the layers panel, and they have five new panels in InDesign CS5 for creating um, animated objects, um, really cool, like little slideshows, what they call um, multi-state objects. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, like a like a button that looks green, and then when you roll over, it turns red. Well, that's kind of the con- the base of the concept. It's not really a rollover button. It's like a little picture. And then you can click a button or do something else, and a different picture replaces it, or a different graphic. It doesn't even have to be in the same location. It could be in somewhere else on the screen. You know, in CS4, they added a whole bunch of print features. They added a whole bunch of long document features like cross-referencing. They, they, uh, they added conditional text and a lot of variables. So it's not like they've been ignoring print or anything. But um, they just wanted to, you know open up the field for people who are expert in InDesign to be able to take on more kind of projects. If you're a regular mope working at a company doing print stuff and the boss says, hey, what's this with this Swift stuff or what's this with these EPUBs? Uh, can you do that? You want to be able to say yes, you know? So that's what Adobe is trying to satisfy. Thanks very much to her geekiness and Marie Concepcion for appearing on this week's program. We were, or at least I was, having so much fun that we kept talking and talking and talking. So next week, we'll have part two of the conversation. And a week after that, we'll have part three. You may also want to check out some of the resources from Anne-Marie Concepcion. InDesign CS5's new features, that's a program she has at lynda.com, and three websites that she is either in charge of entirely or associated with. InDesign Secrets, Design Geek, and Seneca Design. You'll find links to all of those from the TechBiter Worldwide website. As for Adobe InDesign, I'll tell you more about the program itself next week, but here are some of the highlights. The Layers panel has been redesigned to be more like what you find in Adobe Photoshop or Adobe Illustrator. Because so much editing today is done on screen and in the final publication format, The ability to track changes in the story editor is a most welcome addition. Electronic books are increasingly popular, and InDesign is there to help with the creation of books in the EPUB format for the Apple iPad, Sony Reader, Barnes & Noble Nook, mobile phones, and other devices. You may have noticed I left out the Amazon Kindle, but with a minor conversion, EPUB files can even be used on the Kindle. That, however, is another story. My favorite new feature, of course, is the ability to create paragraphs that span columns because that's the way newsletters and newspapers are designed. And the companion ability to split a paragraph into multiple columns within a column is a really cool trick. And there's also the ability to handle more than one page size in a document. That's a feature that's particularly handy for magazines that include fold-out pages. And that's more than just Playboy. So the bottom line is really, oh, wow, but you're going to have to wait for a cat rating. 
If you're involved in publishing anything, from gum wrappers to brochures to newspapers and magazines, and you sat out the CS4 update, you owe it to yourself to check out InDesign CS5. Yes, a few features are still missing. But you won't find a better application for converting words and pictures to print. And until I finish the third part of the review, you're just going to have to wait or guess what the cat rating will be. There is a link to the Adobe InDesign website from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. A friend once called Time Warner to tell them that one of their routers was going bad. His thanks? Being accused of hacking the network. Five or more years ago, that was before Wide Open West improved its technical support operation, I called to report that a name server was failing. The technician I spoke to said that WoW didn't use name servers, and knowing that was nonsense, I asked to speak to his supervisor. I was then put on infinite hold. Late in 2008, the name server at Time Warner in Los Angeles crashed, and the company's 1.2 million customers were unable to use the Internet. You may not have experienced any problems like that, but your online life will be easier and more secure if you dump the name server your Internet service provider provides and use OpenDNS. It's free, and the change is easy to make. Name server is kind of a nickname for the domain name service server, and I'll use the term DNS from now on. DNS is what converts a name that you can remember, techbiter.com, for example, into an ID number that your computer can use, 69.89.31.245, for example, which just happens to be the IP address of the server my site is on. You can think of DNS as kind of a gigantic phone book. When you type a URL into the address line of a browser, the browser asks for a connection to the URL, and the DNS provides the number. The other services along the way know how to set up the appropriate communications between your IP address and the IP address of the site you want to view. OpenDNS has been around for five years, and I've been using it for at least four. It's simply a better alternative. Of course, the OpenDNS servers could crash someday, but the company says it has not happened yet. Better reliability isn't the only advantage OpenDNS brings to the party, though. You get more cash. No, not the spendable kind, sorry. Your ISP caches, which is a fancy term that means stores locally for quick lookup, the IP addresses of the most popular sites. But OpenDNS takes this a step further and caches every website on the Internet. The result is that all pages load just slightly faster than they would otherwise, you might actually notice the difference, but probably not. Fixing typos is another improvement. If you mistype a URL while using your Internet service provider's DNS, one of two things will happen. You might be connected to a site that has registered the incorrect URL. If that happens, it might be nothing more than an advertising site, but it could also be a malicious site that tries to install malware on your computer. If you don't notice that you're at the wrong address, you might even give it permission. The other possibility is that you'll see a page filled with network-speak gibberish, and the page will essentially say, Sorry, wrong number, bozo. OpenDNS has a much better solution. If I type techbiter.cm instead of com, OpenDNS automatically changes it to techbiter.com and then takes me there without even stopping to call me an idiot. Or if I misspell it, say, for example, 
T-E-C-H-B-T-Y-E-R.com. OpenDNS says, you tried to visit www.techbatire.com, which is not loading. Did you mean www.techbiter.com? With a single additional click, I get the site I was looking for. Try that with your ISP's DNS. You can cut the phishing line. Most people are smart enough to avoid phishing emails these days, but even smart people who are security conscious can make a mistake. Let's say you've just placed an order and used PayPal to pay. A few minutes later, you receive a phishing message. Because you are actually expecting such a message, you don't check for telltale signs. Instead, you click the link. Bam! Your computer is infected. But not with OpenDNS. The service is very good when it comes to spotting the rogue links and blocking them. And keep in mind that all of these extra features are free. Another option is shortcuts. I've had somewhat uneven results with this feature. Because the shortcut information lives on the OpenDNS server, you need to be logged into your free OpenDNS account or have the free OpenDNS service updater running in the tray. The shortcuts, as I mentioned, are defined on the OpenDNS server. So I created TBWW as a shortcut to the TechBiter Worldwide website. When I typed TBWW in the address bar, the result was a Google search. That was in Firefox. I found that I could make some modifications to Firefox, and the shortcut worked. But Chrome and Internet Explorer both took me to a Bing search. Bing isn't even my default search engine for either browser. OpenDNS support provided a clue for Internet Explorer, and that turned out to be the key for making the shortcuts work in all browsers. For Internet Explorer version 8, you need to create an OpenDNS search engine entry and make it the default. OpenDNS doesn't have a support page for Chrome or Opera, but I was able to adapt the IE instructions to fit both of those browsers. And using the feature with my preferred browser, Firefox, does require making a little change to the configuration. OpenDNS explains all of them quite well. And there's one more feature, parental controls. You already know I'm not a big fan of these, but some people are. OpenDNS allows its users to identify and rate sites that fit into one of 57 categories, and you choose which ones you want to block. So you're probably wondering, how can all these services and features be free? Well, they're not really 100% free. OpenDNS makes its money by displaying ads when you mistype a URL. So you'll see an ad. If you're a business user, you will need to pay $5 per year per user. And if you want a few extra features at home, you can pay $9 per year for the whole household. $9 per year. That's still pretty close to free. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll find a chart from the OpenDNS website. It shows which features are included for free and which extras you get if you're willing to pay the $9 per year for all the computers in your house. I've been using the free service for about four years, but I think I may try the $9 service for a year and see if I find the extras useful. The setup is easy, but it can appear intimidating. If you have a single computer hooked up to a cable modem or the equivalent, you'll simply need to modify the network settings. This varies by operating system, but OpenDNS shows you how to do it. If you have a home network, and this is going to assume that you've set up all the computers on the network to obtain what they need from the router, then you need only change two entries on the router. The DNS servers come in pairs, so you need to change both of them. The OpenDNS IP addresses are shown on the TechBiter Worldwide website. 
And, of course, you can also get them from OpenDNS. Once you've made the change, you go to the OpenDNS site, and it will tell you whether you've been successful or not. If you follow the instructions, and they really are pretty easy instructions, you will be successful. The bottom line on OpenDNS, faster, safer, better than the DNS you're using now, and free, too. I've written about OpenDNS in the past, most recently just back in March, and maybe you even thought about making the change, but then something got in the way and you never got around to it. Gee, that never happens to me. I always get everything done that I plan to do. So consider this a reminder. There is simply no good reason not to use OpenDNS. And that, by way of a double negative, is a very strong endorsement. For more information, check the OpenDNS website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, the FCC continues to ask for input, whether it's net neutrality or over-the-air Internet service. The FCC wants to hear from you. FCC Chairman Julius Genachowski says the issues are complex and it's important for the agency to do what people want. You know, in olden times, the Federal Communications Commission, a regulatory agency, by the way, established rules. For the past 20 years or more, the FCC seems to have forgotten that it is a regulatory agency. The whole point of having a regulatory agency, such as the FCC, is for bureaucrats and by the way, bureaucrat is not a dirty word, to have bureaucrats review conditions and set policies that make sense. The FCC left it up to the open market to decide which of two competing stereo systems for AM radio stations should be adopted by the industry. As a result, both failed. So it seems that the FCC is essentially saying, and I paraphrase here, we really think that net neutrality is a peachy keen fine idea if you do, but if you don't, we're okay with that too. Well, now Google and Verizon, a couple of companies with a lot of money, have stepped forward with a proposal to save net neutrality by destroying net neutrality, and nobody seems to have a problem with that. The FCC is also trying to figure out how to regulate wireless broadband, and the current thinking seems to be that it will be largely unregulated. Maybe. The FCC says again it does want to hear from you. It wants to know what it's supposed to do because it can't figure it out for itself. So if you have a clue what the FCC should do, let them know. Even if it's not a very big clue or a high-quality clue, it would seem to be more than the agency has currently. Hewlett-Packard has just agreed to pay $55 million to settle charges by the Department of Justice that HP gave illegal kickbacks to companies that recommended HP products to government agencies. HP, of course, admits nothing, but says the decision to pay is in the best interest of stockholders. Some of the companies that were charged along with HP three years ago said the payments represented legitimate discounts. But data storage company EMC paid $87 million in May to settle complaints. IBM settled for $5.2 million. Neither company admitted doing anything wrong. And a suit is still pending against Sun Microsystems, which is now part of Oracle. The suits were filed in an Arkansas federal court. Google, which is it, good or bad? Google's CEO Eric Schmidt has a fairly black-and-white view of things. If you have something that you don't want anyone to know, he says, maybe you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Okay. 
I wonder if Mr. Schmidt would like me to know how much money he has in his bank, which bank it is, and what his social security number is, what his home address is, for example. Would he like to send me a picture of his house? There's a pretty good chance if you use any Google services that the company knows at least some of those things about you. Google critic Consumer Watchdog launched a video ad in Times Square this week. The ad portrays Schmidt as an ice cream vendor who gives out free ice cream to anyone who will permit a full body scan. The company hopes to convince Congress to pass legislation similar to the Do Not Call law that limits telephone solicitation. The goal would be to create a Do Not Track list that would allow users to opt out of having online marketers track information about them. Consumer Watchdog's Google site is InsideGoogle.com. Consumer Watchdog wants the Federal Trade Commission to regulate when and how a company can track its users. Some tracking seems to be reasonable enough, though. It's a waste of my time and the advertiser's money to show me ads about cigars, gardening, or luxury second homes. That's because I can't stand cigars, gardening doesn't interest me, and even if I had the money for a second home, I probably wouldn't want one. But an advertiser who shows me an amusing T-shirt or a cool electronic device will interest me and might make a sale. Tracking is what allows advertisers to match ads to consumers, so there is some benefit. But there are times when privacy is important. Someone who is investigating certain medical conditions might not want to broadcast that information to the world of advertisers. So a line exists, and it seems as if it's in the best interest of Google, advertisers, and all Internet users to find a way for users to individually define where that line is. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.